Thank you, Alan. It is good to see you this morning. I, I was kind of wondering whether you would be standing there and there'd be nobody up here preaching. You know, <laughs> were you thinking that too? Uh, no, no, I'm glad we're all here. What a, what a wonderful 2022 that we've had. And I'm looking forward to actually 2023. Are you not? Yeah. All right. I know God has blessed us in ways that we never thought. And, and, and he's got blessings yet in store. For me, 2023 is going to bring a new grandbaby, which is exciting. All right. You know, those are wonderful. Th- yeah, us, the, okay, we got, we, got more, we got more coming in. See, that we, we're starting this year off wonderful, you know. Um, and so I'm looking forward to, to really what, what is God's big plan for all of this and how do we fit into it. As we have concluded through our little series of sermons looking at Christmas through the eyes uh, of different characters, whether it be the shepherds or Mary and Joseph or even Jesus and, and God's plan for that, I think that is what the rest of Scripture is all about, taking a closer look at Christ. And why he came into this world and for what purpose was that. And that's really what Romans is kind of laying out for us. And so we're going to get back into our study in the book of Romans, beginning today in chapter 9, verse 1. You remember the tin man from the Wizard of Oz? All right. Remember what he wanted more than anything else was to have a heart, right? You know, because he's he just a tin man, and it, well, it wasn't quite as hollow as him, but you know, you kind of get it, right? He, he, he wanted a heart. He saw himself as this emotional hunk of metal trapped in a tin body and incapable of feeling, and yet, from the outset, it seemed to me that he had feelings. He wanted to know what it was like to have compassion. And in the end, what we remember most about the tin man is that what he so desired to have a heart was what he had all along. As soon as we turn the page into Romans chapter 9, we immediately notice that something is changing in the way that Paul is writing this letter. The content in chapter 8 was so encouraging and so positive and so uplifting. I mean, it was this big crescendo that we've got salvation and we've got this wonderful thing that Christ has done for us and and all the world is going to be able to, to finally have this realization of God's love if they would just look to that. And they've dealt with the Christian's hope and the glory and our strong confidence that God will keep His promises. But then we turn to chapter 9, and it's like somebody turned off the lights. And the mood changes, and everything seems to be dark and dreary for Paul. Right here in the middle of this book, in chapter 9, he begins to talk specifically about his own kinsmen, the Jewish people. And as he begins to talk about this new direction of God's relationship with mankind because of Jesus Christ, 
his heart now begins to break for his people. Now we know that, that Paul has been set apart to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles, an evangelist to go into the Gentile world, to Rome and all that, and he's got this special relationship because he's a Roman citizen that he has privileges that others may not have. But he wants them to know as he's writing this letter, his heart and his compassion is for his people and something is wrong there with them. You see, it was through his people that God had been working for generations to bring about the salvation of all mankind. And now he's introducing them to this new way of thinking, this way of grace rather than law, this aspect of faith rather than a works of obedience. And he knows that there are going to be some major problems with his Jewish brothers and sisters because of what he said in the previous eight chapters. And so he wants to correct some of the false ideas that may be already stirring within their minds as they have just read through this letter. Now, in view of the privileges that God has placed upon this group of people and the role in which they plan, this logical expectation would be that above all other things, they would be rejoicing in the hope that is described there at the end of chapter 8. But the shocking and the tragic fact is this. Most of the people of Israel were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And His coming into this world was the very reason and the purpose of their existence as a special group of people. And as a result, rather than celebrating their salvation, they are finding by His writing that they are now under a curse because they have rejected Messiah. Now, Paul's reaction to their plight to the Jews, it takes two forms. One is subjective. And on a personal level, his heart is filled with grief and his eyes are probably filled with tears as he's writing this out to them because they're lost condition apart from Jesus Christ. And then there's this other more objective portion as well. It's more on a theological level and that he's concerned that some might take Israel's rejection as an indication that God and His promises in His Word has actually failed, that he has not kept his promise to them. While his personal grief is warranted, his greater concern, however, is that they are going to now look at God in a different perspective. So the main point of this section we're going to look at this morning is going to be verses 1 through 5 in Romans chapter 9, all right? And the first three verses, it, it, it's going to set forth this aspect of the plight of Israel, what has, what has happened to them. And in the, the next two verses, verses 4 and 5, he really wants to lay out what their privileges are because of what God has done for them. And so we look at these two things, their struggle and, and their privilege, and how can these things be reconciled together? And has, has God's Word really somehow failed to fulfill his promises. And so by raising these questions, Paul is kind of preparing his defense of God's faithfulness to the people and how he has dealt with them as Jews. 
So as we begin, verses 1, 2, and 3, I, I want us to kind of look a little bit at Israel's its agony. What is, what is their big struggle right now because of Jesus coming into the world, all right? So let's look at verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, and my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul has this opening statement here. And he, he wants to, to, to let them know about the truthfulness of not only what he has said in the past, but what he's about to say right now. All right? Not only does he make this a positive statement by saying, I want you to know the truth, but he also reiterates it in a, very, in a negative affirmation of, well, of not wanting to lie to them. All right? And so he drives home this point about how brokenhearted he is. He probably wished he was like the tin man who could not have any emotional feelings at this point. But what's happening is Paul is so tender-hearted about the people that he has grown up with, that he loves the people who are part of his family, his kinsmen, and recognizing that they are rejecting Jesus. So to further confirm the truthfulness of his, Paul, his words, Paul invokes three distinct witnesses right here at the very beginning of this. All right, One is his own conscience, in which he testifies or bears witness along with him. In other words, Paul has no personal reservations about what he's going to tell them. I mean, have, you ever, have you ever thought that maybe something might not be right and yet you've got to speak it? You kind of have some reservations about saying it, right? Well, Paul has no reservations. His own conscience is affirming what he has written and what he's about to tell them as well. All right, so he himself has wrestled through this, and he knows what I'm thinking is true and right, and therefore I've got to communicate this to you. The other two witnesses are Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Paul says he speaks the truth in Christ. Now it could simply mean that he is speaking one who he is speaking as one who is conscious of being in a relationship and union with Jesus Christ, but it also could bear with it some authority that because he is in Christ as an apostle, that he has to speak the very words of truth because of his position. He can't lie to them. And the same thing is true about with the Holy Spirit. It could be referring to the fact that he's writing them under the inspiration of the Spirit. And therefore, it's preventing him from speaking anything but the truth. He wants them to know truth. Because they're probably beginning to think, you've been lying to us all this time. So his appeal to Christ and the Holy Spirit, in addition to his own conscience, is an important lesson. I think we must remember, the conscience itself is not infallible in guiding us in making choices. Sometimes we can be deceived by our own heart, right? And by our own thoughts. 
and we can convince ourselves of something that maybe we ought not do. So we can't always put the best guide on our conscience. Rather, it operates, however, as a standard of truth that must be established on other grounds. And so he's laying out the other grounds by which we can establish this because it is in Christ and it is in the Holy Spirit. And so for us today, we may not be an apostle and we may not be fully inspired to write down the very words of God as Paul was, but we have the very words of God within the Bible that guide us. Isn't it great when we go back into Scripture and it says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. All right? And so if we hide it in our heart, we will not do what? Sin against God. So we use it as a guide for us. And that's what it does. So what is Paul so adamant about? What it comes down to this. Paul is filled with this personal anguish and grief, and he expresses that there in verse 2. And it's really made clear in verse 3, the fact that his own kinsmen, it could be his brothers and his sisters, his cousins, his neighbors, it's the people he grew up with in the synagogue, and all these that were Jewish people, they were under now God's curse because they failed to accept Jesus Christ as Messiah. And he's preaching that Jesus is Messiah. And, and when he goes to a community, it doesn't matter what the city is, one of the first things he does is he goes to the synagogue. And he begins to teach at the synagogue until he's rejected there. And then he goes to the marketplaces and he preaches there. But the Jews are rejecting Jesus. And so he is filled with such deep sorrow because he wants his people to believe in Jesus that He is who He says He is, that He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah that are coming true. And just as Samuel, who mourned for King Saul when he rejected God. And how Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, cried over a fallen Israel. Paul is now crying over his people because they will not accept and they will not find salvation in Jesus. So all of this sets up for Paul what he's going to be writing to them over the next few chapters, especially Romans 9 through 11. All right? He's already exposed their shallowness of faith early on in chapter 2 through chapter 3, and how their sinfulness has brought condemnation just as much as the Gentiles and how their sinfulness has brought condemnation upon them, that there is nobody who is righteous, that there is nobody who is without sin, for all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, right? Now he's about to expose the truth that the Jews are just as lost as the Gentiles, and that God is no under, under no special obligation to save them simply because they're Jewish. Paul wants him to know that he truly wishes that that were not the case, but he wants him to find salvation so bad that he says, if it were possible for him to take their place and be accursed. In other words, if I could go to hell for you, I would do that. That's what he's telling them. He recognizes 
that if he could find some way to step in and take their place, he would do that. That word accursed, anathema, is used in other places to speak of eternal condemnation. All right? To eternally be cut off and condemned means that you would go to hell. And Paul is saying, I wish I could be accursed for you. Yet it's impossible. Because he can't take their place. Because he's in the same boat with them. Because he's a sinner. There's only one person who could take their place and receive the full condemnation of their sin. And that is the one who, perfect in life, offers himself as a sacrifice to atone for their sins. And that has been done in Jesus, who they are rejecting. So Paul has his grief. But there's one more thing than, than, than this that gives him grief. His agony of heart goes even more deeper. Beyond knowing that they are lost because of their relationship, rejection of Jesus, he also knows that what he's writing to them has potential of probably even making them angry about what he's going to say. I mean, you would think they would be happy about hearing the gospel message, right? That Jesus came to save all men and that he would offer his life as an atoning sacrifice for everybody so that their sins could be forgiven and they would receive the wonderful grace of God and eternal life with him. You can be sure, however, that these Jews are going to have some hostilities about that statement because they don't want the Gentiles to get it. They have a full understanding that they are God's chosen people and the rest of the world can go to hell. Now, if you're not Jewish, that means you're Gentile. You're the rest of the world. And the Jewish faith at that time perceived that exactly the way it would be. God would look upon them and the rest of the world he didn't care about. Now, I think the problem goes back to chapter 2 where Paul said that as far as sin and salvation are concerned, God has been and will continue to treat the Jews and the Gentiles exactly the same. I mean, that's, that's what he's... He, he, he is no difference in all this. But why would there be such a problem for these Jewish people? To begin with, you have to understand their privilege as being God's chosen people his special people who have had this relationship with him through the years. Matter of fact, they were created as a special people by him. And all other nations were considered as rubbish in comparison. That's just who it was. So now for around 2,000 years, since the days of Abraham, God had treated the Jewish people with favor in a, such a special way for such a special purpose for them. But their purpose was to bring the Savior into the world. But, they, but they've somehow misunderstood this problem. You see, their misunderstanding of why they are so special now creates a problem for them. The Jewish people were created as a special group of people so that Messiah would be born. Now this is key. To understand the book of Romans, especially chapters 9, 10, and 11, you have to get this, all right? 
that the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, the only reason God set them apart and called them his own, his chosen people, was he had chosen them in which Jesus would be born into this world. It wasn't because they were such wonderful people, because they often adulterated their religion with him, with other gods. They often rejected him. They often abused their relationship with him. I mean, there was nothing really good about them other than the fact that God was going to use them to bring Jesus into this world. Now, if we understand that, I think it's very crucial that we do that. Then what he's going to write to them here in 9, 10, 11 about their relationship with God and how they have to understand how he is, it's important. So, here comes Paul on the scene, supposedly some spokesman for God, and he says that this idea of their guaranteed salvation simply by the fact that they are Jewish is a big mistake. He says that the Jews are in the same boat with the Gentiles. Go back to Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For God shows no partiality. And in chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? So they're beginning to question this. So what is it, what's all God's promises about if we're not special? God's not fair, is he? I mean, it just doesn't seem fair. Now, in a couple verses, in verse 6 of chapter 9, Paul is going to make this statement. But it's not as though the word of God has failed but that's what they're thinking. They're thinking God can't keep his promise. He promised us. God lied to us. He's unjust. He's unfair. He's unrighteous. And, and, and yet Paul's going to respond in verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, by no means. No. God is fair. So, so what's at stake here is God's character and his faithfulness to the people of Israel. And this is what is also making Paul so unhappy. So let's dig a little bit deeper into this. It seems that the Jews of Paul's day had arrived at this misconception that because they were special status, that every Jew, simply because they were born Jewish, they're going to heaven. And I'll key you in on this today. The Jews feel the same today. Just because they were born Jewish, they're going to heaven. All right? They believe that they will not be judged the same as the Gentiles. Or rather, God is going to show some partiality to them on the day of judgment. They believe that the special treatment was guaranteed by God because He gave them two special signs. He gave them the law of Moses and He gave them circumcision. And so because they are the keepers of the law and they have been marked and set apart as special by God, they are His no matter what. They have eternal security set up simply by being the fact that they're Jewish. All right, And in and, and this commentary here in Romans... You can go back to chapter 2 and you can find out the discussion that he throws out about the circumcision and the law and how it's really not as important as they think and perceive it to be. All right? And so 
what, what they're saying at this time, Moses Lord kind of sums it up in his commentary on the book of Romans. He says that the Jews of Paul's time, they seem to have thought that the mere circumstance of being a Jew protected them from condemnation. All right? There's no way God can condemn us because we're Jewish. But then as the Jews saw it, they wondered who this young upstart apostle Paul was. I mean, so he's changed his name from Saul, and he used to be one of Gamaliel's students, and he was an intelligent fellow. So what's going on? Who is this guy? And he's leading this rebellion against the establishment of Israel. Who does he think he is in saying that the Jews are no better off than the Gentiles when it comes to salvation? He's saying that we're all saved the same way, which is by faith rather than the promises of God. But here's the thing. God did not promise them salvation. He did tell them they were special. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God said this statement, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So now the main issue becomes this. It becomes God's faithfulness, not their faithfulness. Has God broken his promise? Has God changed things? This is how Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 so he says, so what if some of the Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So in his early part of chapter 3, Paul has postponed this fuller discussion until we get to chapter 9. And now he's going to have to bring into context what he was stating back there in chapter 3. And so now he's coming back to it. In Romans 9, 6 again he says, But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel, what? Belong to Israel. What? Not all who are descended of Israel belong to Israel? Yes, we do. No, not necessarily. And he's going to get into this. So the question then, is God treating Israel with injustice? Megenato. Absolutely not. There's no way he's doing this. So Paul now turns his defense to a defense of God concerning Israel. All right? So, we've got a new chapter. And it's a new beginning. And he wants to prove that God is being true not only to himself, but to his promises and to what he has laid out all this time. So, let's look at Israel's ecstasy. What makes them so happy? Well, verse 4 and 5, it says, Well, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, 
who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So this anticipated Jewish attack on on, on God leads Paul to engage in what theologians call theodicy. It's a unique word, and we'll get into that. The the attack on God is described here in verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because he knows that they're going to say, well, God's not being just in this. He's being unfair. But he says, by no means. They are saying that God is guilty of injustice. Adikia is the Greek word that's used there. It means that that, uh, that which deserves condemnation. It comes from the word justice, decay. But when you put the little alpha in front of it, it takes it from being something positive to something negative. All right. Instead of now being justice, it is no justice or injustice, adikia. All right. They're accusing him of not being fair towards Israel. So Paul, he, he sees that he needs to use a little bit of what they have called theodicy. It's from the Greek word theos, God. And guess what? The word dike, justice. Now, an American dictionary says that the word theodicy means this. It's a vindication of the divine attributes, particularly holiness and justice in the face of what looks like some failure on God's part, particularly the aspect of allowing evil in this world. So basically, Paul now is defending God's honor in his defense of not treating Israel any different when it comes to salvation, even even though no other nation has been so blessed as they have been because they are people of Israel under the Old Covenant. So the question is this, so what is the big deal about being Jewish? I mean, shouldn't we all become Jewish if that were the case? I mean, I mean, we just go through that process, become Jewish, and then we can worship God? I mean, what is this big deal about being Jewish? Well, first off, they are Israelites, Paul says. Now, there's special privilege in that name, Israel, all right? They are literal descendants of Jacob, Abraham's grandson, through Isaac. Now, in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, God himself changes Jacob's name to Israel when he wrestled with him. All right? And so the name Israel is usually taken to mean one who contends or struggles with God. They have struggled with God throughout the entirety of their nation. To a Jew, no other earthly ancestry can be compared to being a descendant of Israel. It would be like us tracing our heritage back to people coming over on the Mayflower, all right? Probably not just the Mayflower, but being the captain that brought them here, right? I mean, we, we, we look forward to finding our heritage and our history and where do we come from, and, and all of a sudden, most of us will find a king or a queen in our heritage, right? And it makes us feel more special. This is where they are. They are tracing their heritage back to Jacob, which goes back to Abraham. And so they feel the uniqueness of their generations because of him. 
But not only are they Israelites, but verse 4 says theirs is the adoption. Literally, it's, it's the adoption of sons. It's one Greek word, huyathesia. Now, the word son, huyas, is built right into that. And the sons of Israel would be known as the sons of God in a unique sense. They were, they were not just God's servants. They became His family. And that's how He would refer to the people of Israel. They were His sons and daughters. Every physical child born into a Jewish family automatically became a member of that adopted family of God just by being Jewish. All right? Now, the family relationship, however, nowhere in the Old Testament will you find that being a part of that adoption is the aspect or the idea of salvation ever tied. They have thought this up. But you're not going to find it in the Old Covenant that, that God has saved them from their sins for all eternity because they were born Jewish. It's not there. Right? To them, verse 4 tells us, belongs the glory. Now that word glory, doxa, it means splendor, radiance, magnificence, fame, honor. But here the term is being used about God, not about them. Pardon me. They are not the glory. They are not magnificent. They are not honored. They are not radiant. God is. To them belongs the glory of God. And so it was unique in this because Paul is saying that God's glory was made manifest amongst the people, especially in their wanderings in the desert. We saw that. Because the glory of God went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud. And at night, through a fire, it was there. The glory of God, when they built the tabernacle, would come and it would settle within the tabernacle. And they knew that the glory of God was there. And when they built the permanent temple, the glory of God would come and spend time there in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. They had the glory of God in their presence, which sometimes scared the living daylights out of them. All right? And especially if Moses would go and then he would radiate the glory of God and they were afraid so much that he had to cover his face with a veil. It was in this unique, glorious presence that God was only ever present with the people of Israel. Also, verse 4 tells us that with the people of Israel, there are the covenants. A covenant in Old Testament times was this solemn mutual agreement between two parties, much like a legal contract would be today. All right? Israel was generally the only physical nation or people group that God ever made a covenant with, he, other than if you talk about Noah and the rainbow. Right? There was the promise of a covenant between God and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. But when you look at that covenant, he was promising them that through them would come Messiah. 
So he covenanted with them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then we have the covenant that appears with the nation as a whole there through Moses on Mount Sinai when the law was specifically given. So it brings us to that next statement that Israel was the giving of the law. It's actually a single word in the Greek that's used here, uh, namothesia, which means to them was the law giving. It was theirs. That was all it was. They're the only ones who got the law of God. Nobody else got it, just them, all right? But it refers specifically to the law of Moses, and he's made that clear back in Romans chapter 2 that they broke that law. And that simply by possession of the law of Moses did not guarantee their salvation, though. To them also belongs, he uses the word worship. All right? Latria. It refers not to what we just did and coming together and singing songs of praise and praying and listening to a message. Worship was actually the service in the temple through the sacrifices. All right, so it was, it was the aspect of how are we going to worship God by offering up sacrifices and by, by offering up the, the, uh, the prayers to the people, to God through, for the people. It would include the entire ceremonial aspect of worship in the temple. Also in verse 4, we're told that Israel was given the promises. Now we already know about that through the law of Moses That it came, but that's not just the promise. The promise is this great aspect that is given to Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now listen to this. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Did you catch that? In Abraham and through Abraham, this promise is there that all the families of the earth would be blessed. We also discover that theirs are the fathers. It's often referred to as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? These were their national heroes. It would be like saying that, yeah, you know, Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln, and those are all people part of my heritage, my family, right? We think, oh, you've got some good stock. Well, that's what they're looking at. These men of faith were a part of their family heritage. And from their race, according to the flesh, in verse 5, Paul says, from the Jews comes the Christ. Jesus is coming in this. Now this blessing is listed as last because it's climactic in its, in its essence. It is the biggest thing that they've got all these wonderful things and they're going, yes, 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 yes. And then he says, and through you is going to come the Christ. And they're like, yes, that's right. Well, who is this Christ? It's Jesus, the one whom they're rejecting. See, this is the main point and gold toward which all the other privileges that were heaped upon Israel were pointing. All the other blessings fade into the background and they lose their significance without this one, that through them the Christ would come. And this is important. It's His incarnation into this world, which we just celebrated with Christmas, right? The greatest gift that God ever gave the world was what? Jesus coming into it so that he could redeem us of our sins and bring us our salvation. And all the Old Testament promises were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. All the promises 
that were originally made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, they were fulfilled how? Through Israel, in Jesus, to us. All right? All the promises that were made to Israel, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the nation, all the promises that God ever made, they were fulfilled through Israel, in Jesus, to us. So this is the final point that's related to to his whole main point of defending God's faithfulness. His last blessing mentions the one about the first coming of Jesus Christ in itself establishes God's faithfulness to them regarding his full promises to Israel. God has not ignored his promises to you. He has kept them and he has fulfilled them in Jesus. However, none of the blessings of Israel without that last one amount to a hill of beans. Because without Jesus, their special relationship with God is immaterial. And so now he's going to begin here in chapter 9 and forward and kind of help them to understand, yes, you've had a special purpose by God, but that was to bring through you Jesus for all of us. Every Old Testament Jew could literally say, in a sense, that Christ is from the Jews and that Jesus is my descendant. But no Jew could say, just because he was a Jew, that Jesus is my Savior. That really comes down to where we are today. Alan, I'm starting off the year bad where we are today. While the Jews can claim the fact that Jesus came through them, He is not their Savior simply because they are Jewish. He is their Savior when they put their faith in Him and in His grace and in His goodness and in His power and in His death, burial, and resurrection do they believe that's what it takes not only for you and me but that's what it takes for the Jew as well and that's why Paul is breaking in his heart is because they're not accepting Jesus and every community that he goes to and he begins to preach in the synagogues they want to throw him out some of these guys have even stirred up trouble for him and have had him arrested and they've had him beaten and and they've, they've stoned him and they've tried to kill him time and time again. And all he wants is for them to find Jesus as their Savior. And I think our hearts should break for everybody as well. Because it's not just the Jews who need Jesus. It's us. When was the last time you cried for somebody because you know they're not going to heaven? 
Maybe like the tin man, you need a heart. But I think you'll discover it's, it's really there. But we've just kind of squelched it. We need to be so passionate about bringing people to Christ. Because without Him, they have no hope. Are you willing to share your faith with somebody else? Let's begin 2023 on new footing. Using this as a new platform in which we can jump and we can then share this wonderful news with everybody that they might find Jesus and discover salvation. You with me? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for what you have done for us. In spite of the messes that we make, in spite of the privileges that we think that we have because we're American citizens or, or because we're Christians or just simply because we're people. Father, privileges don't amount to much if obligation to your Son is not followed. He's commanded us to go out into all the world to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them into your name, into his, into the Spirit. And that we're, we're told that we should teach them to obey all things that you have commanded. And Father, we know that you'll not forsake us in this, that you will be there with us through your Spirit, guiding us, directing us each step of the way. May this new year be a new year in which we share our faith boldly to a world that desperately needs to know about Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.